Okay, welcome back, everybody. Page uh, 18, lesson four. Fourth of four weeks together in the newcomer's orientation. So today's the end. And as I've been saying, if uh, you have any questions as we go, then don't hesitate to ask them. But in the three previous weeks, we've looked at the fact that we try to be an intentional church, a healthy church, and a growing church. But now lesson four, page 18, you see at the top there, it says a committed church. So today is about the fact that if you decide to move forward with becoming a member at CBC, you make some commitments. We make commitments to you, but you make some commitments as as well. So this is about the series of commitments that we make to one another and you sign. When you join the church, you sign that I'm committing to these things. They're part of our church covenant. When I have people up front that are joining the, the church, like we had Emily up there this morning, and you'll hear me say often that she, we've met with her, we've heard the testimony of salvation, baptism, and she signed our membership covenant. Maybe you've heard me say that. This is what I'm referring to, that we have this membership covenant that includes that I commit to these these things. So that is what page 18 and the title of today's lesson, A Committed Church, is about. Now, page 18 and uh, 19 are a letter that the leadership team of our church sent to the congregation back on June 29th of 2010. So just a little over, uh, just almost exactly six years ago. We adopted these uh, commitments and everybody going forward joining our church would commit to these. So that's what those two pages are. And then uh, the next page is just uh, page 20 and 21 is just extolling the virtues of actually joining the church as opposed to being an attender but not a member. And it's suggesting to you on pages 20 and 21 that there are reasons for you to be a member and not just an attender. So I'm not going through that. What I am going to go through starts on page 22 then. Page 22. You guys have? Okay, page 22. And there are several of these commitments, and I'm going to go through them. There are pages worth. I'm not reading all of this, but I'm going to highlight and explain the portions that are uh, most, uh, I think, most important and could probably be most uh, misunderstood. So the very first one is on page 22. If you join our church, you're committing to peacemaking and reconciliation. Unity in God's church is something that uh, he values greatly. And I said this morning, if you were in the first hour from Ephesians chapter 4, that Ephesians 4 teaches that we're to be united with each other because God is united, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, in Ephesians 4 verses 3 through 6, Ephesians 4, 3 through 6, uh, it actually talks about the oneness of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that's to be emulated in the relationships that we have with each other. So it is a great tragedy when churches split. And particularly when they split for the reasons that most often happen. They are lesser reasons. They are unworthy reasons. There, there are worthy reasons to split. If, it, if, it, if there's a doctrinal issue and there's some truth of God that is being distorted or something that God says to do that a church or its leadership refuses to do, 
or there's there's direct sin going on, particularly amongst the leadership, that's not being dealt with, as God says. Well, those are all reasons to leave a church and to split. Those are worthy reasons. But most of the reasons a church is split, and I've been around church my entire 54 years, uh, are unworthy reasons. They are personal conflicts that occur between people. And that ought not happen. That ruptures the body of Christ. And there is one body, Ephesians 4. And it is not to be ruptured by these unworthy things. So that's why this is first in these commitments. It is that important. If you join our church, you're making a commitment to be a peacemaker and a reconciler. And if something happens between you and anybody in the church, you're going to seek to go through biblical means to get that straightened out which is on page 22. There's personal peacemaking. And there it's just giving what the Bible says about you got a problem with somebody else. They've done something to you, whether sin or maybe it's less than sin, but it's something that was offensive. You're having a hard time getting over it or vice versa. The Bible gives instruction about going to that individual and the attitude with which you go to that individual and, and you handle it. And most problems should be handled that way. They should be handled between the individuals involved. But there are times, and the Bible recognizes that there are times, where you going to the individual doesn't solve the problem. So that's what the bottom of page 22 is about, assisted peacemaking. When the two of us cannot resolve a conflict privately, we'll seek the mediation of wise people in our church and listen humbly to their counsel. If our dispute is with a church leader, we'll look to the other leaders for for assistance. And then we give some thoughts about, about how to do that. So that's the, uh, that's the first thing, is that you're committing to unity within the church. You'll seek that by going to the person. If someone comes to you, you'll look to receive them with an openness, a Christian openness, a humility that's necessary in order for you to see any wrong that you might have committed. And then if you need help on it, you'll go to people to get that help. But at all costs, you want to get it straightened out. Okay? Next page, page 24. Not only commitment to peacemaking and reconciliation, but also to preserving marriages. And in these pages, this page and a half, you, you'll read there that God values marriage and he intends for marriage to be a permanent union between a man and a woman. And therefore... Divorce is an absolute last option. And we will do everything that we can to counsel uh, with you, to help you reconcile whatever ruptures might uh, be happening or may happen in the future in your in your marriage. Now, uh, one of the ways we help preserve marriages is by being proactive rather than just reactive. I've married, I, I should count how many people I've married over the years, but a bunch. And in a proactive way, I refuse to marry anyone who has not gone through premarital counseling. And that's, that's being proactive about marriage problems. Uh, because they're going to occur, but if you, before you get married, understand what baggage each of you is bringing into the marriage, it will help, it will help immensely. So I don't know how many people have done that with it. It's been a lot over the years. I had one couple that I foolishly allowed I allowed them to talk me into not waiting for premarital counsel. They were an older couple. Uh, and so I allowed them to talk me into it. It's my fault. It's not their fault. I shouldn't have let them talk me into it. 
Uh, but I did that because they were an older couple, and I thought they would have the maturity, and so I, I went ahead and married them without the premarital marriage. Of all of the weddings that I've done, only one of those marriages has ended in divorce, and it was out. And I attribute it primarily to that lack of premarital counseling. We could have headed off some of the stuff that they faced in the premarital counseling before they got married. Yes, Kimberly. You do the premarital. I do the premarital counseling. Yeah. I uh, now you know our church has gotten larger, but I've always done it, and we've, I've never really had a pastoral staff to share that with. Starting this Friday, this Friday, Larry Castle is beginning uh, his work here part time to start with. But I'm very delighted about that. So, Kimberly, to answer your question, yes, but that could change as we get pastoral staff and I have to delegate some of that. But to this point, I've done it. and uh, But it's that important. So that's a proactive way to do it. But then there's the reactive way. You know, stuff comes up, and then we do counseling with people, marriage counseling with people to try to uh, rectify what goes wrong in, in marriages. Divorce is to be a last resort, but it is allowed in the Bible for two reasons. Abandonment and adultery. In 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 7, the Bible uh, says that if one party in the marriage, it calls that party in the marriage an unbeliever. If the unbeliever does not want to stay, then the believer is not under under obligation, says 1 Corinthians 7. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, but what if the person who leaves is a believer? Well, the assumption is, if you're a believer, you wouldn't leave without reason. So the assumption of 1 Corinthians 7 is if a person is going to disobey God's requirements blatantly about marriage, then you're to consider them, as Jesus said in Matthew 18, as a pagan and a, and a tax collector, an unbeliever. So one is abandoning the marriage. One of the parties leaves. Then the other party is not under obligation. They could remarry. They could divorce and remarry. But then the other is adultery. And Jesus in Matthew 19 made that exception. Uh, he said, it, quote, except it be for marital unfaithfulness. And so that's an exception that Jesus makes. And if that happens, then a, uh, the a party, the innocent party, uh, can divorce and could, could remarry as well. Okay? So that's our commitment to preserving marriages, premarital counseling. Divorce is a last resort, but it biblically can be allowed under those two circumstances. Okay? All right, page 26. Commitment to protecting our children. And this is something we're committing to to you, but if, if you get involved in our children's ministries here, you're committing to as well. And the idea here is that we are not going to allow anyone to work with our children who we have not vetted properly. And that vetting process involves a couple of things. One we do background checks on people who do who work with our children and we pay uh, for a service and I forget how much it is per person you know it's $15 or something but to run a, a fairly thorough background check on those who are going to work with our children that means that if you work with our children that's anyone under 18 in our ministry here you have to fill out an application and you acknowledge on that application that I'm willing to have this background check run and then we, we run the background check. So that's one. The other thing we do to vet those who are involved with our kids is they have to take our child protection training course. We have a course that we teach with some material 
that says this is how you interact we interact with our children to protect them um, so that they're not abused for heaven's sake uh, you know in the church or by somebody in the church and that course teaches you some of the rules that we have like for instance uh, you're never in a room alone with a child uh, there's never a one-on-one you know with the child um, we designed this building so that all of our doors have windows in on purpose so that uh, part of the routine for our security team we have a security team and a couple of guys are on security duty every week and they're roaming the hallways but one of the things they do is just roam the hallways to make sure there aren't any strangers coming in or any of that but they also are uh, to look in the, the windows just randomly look in the windows and just see that everything's cool so that those who are teaching, everybody in there knows that there are people making the rounds, okay? And there are the windows and the doors, and there's never to be anybody uh, anybody one-on-one. So we have uh, what we call the um, rule of three. I almost forgot it. It's in that child protection policy, it's called the, the rule of three. Uh, there will always be at least three people in the, um, in the room. There'll never just be two people, never just a one adult and one one child. The child protection course has a bunch of these kinds of things. You have to take it if you work with our kids. You have to sign that you took it. So it uh, has worked very well for us. Uh, We've never, thank the Lord, to this point, 15 years, we've never had an an issue or an accusation come up. Uh, But you never know what can happen in the future. Not only does it protect the children, it protects you. It protects you from a false accusation. Because if you've gone through all of these steps then you've got that to protect you from some child, you know, and that can happen too, making something up about you. But you have other people there, you have witnesses, all of that. It protects not only the children, it protects you. Now, let me tell you this story about how important maintaining this is and being vigilant about it is. At our parent church, the church at which I was on staff where we were members for 16 years, Huron Baptist in Flat Rock, we developed a child training course like this and we insisted that those who work with our kids take it and for our Wednesday night program we had there something similar to what we have here we had a kids program it was called Awana some of you are familiar with Awana and we we had that and it met the Awana program on Wednesday nights there didn't meet at the church building it met two doors down at an elementary school the elementary school let us use there so you had the children's program here, and then two doors away at the church building, you had an adult Bible study going on. So the parents would drop the kids off, and they would come over for the adult Bible study. We had a guy who was visiting our church, and had been visiting for several weeks. But instead of dropping his daughter off at the elementary school and going over for the Bible study, he would stay there. He would stay at the elementary school. Now, I wasn't in the Awana program. I was actually doing teen work at the time with some of your kids, working with some of your kids too, right? (laughs) And uh, I was doing teamwork. So I wasn't there, but one of the leaders from Awana contacted me and said, hey, we got this guy. It's been about three or four weeks. He's been hanging around at the program. I've talked to him and told him that we have an adult Bible study, but he refuses to, to go to it, and he keeps coming and hanging around. And now he's not only hanging around, he's trying to get involved in some of the games and some of the stuff they do with the kids. So I've talked to him. I don't know what to do. I said, okay, I'll talk to him. So I talked to the guy. 
And I said, hey, for the protection of our children, the protection of your daughter, everybody else, we've got this policy, and we've got the Bible study, and that's what we have for the adults. You'll need to do that. And he was very upset. And he, he says this. He says, I thought this was a Baptist church. So, you know, so Baptist, what does that mean? Baptists let everybody have access to their children? And, and that was in his mind, by the way. I mean, he meant that. And in a lot of Baptist churches, frankly, it's a free-for-all. You know, whatever people want to do, they just get to do. And a, ch- a church can't operate well that way. So I said, yeah, it is a Baptist church, but that doesn't affect what I'm telling you. And next week, when you bring your daughter, if you choose to bring your daughter, you cannot be there. You'll have to be at the Bible study. I never saw them. Now, a few years later, I get a call at the church office. It's from the principal of the high school in Flat Rock, of the uh, middle school in Flat Rock. So she's now in middle school, the daughter. And this principal says, hey, uh, do you know this family? I had almost forgotten. It had been a few years. And I said, yeah, I, I, I do. I remember. Because the principal had heard that they go to our church somewhere and said, have you ever th- seen anything strange? So the principal's asking me questions. And I related the story that we had to insist that the dad not be there, but he hadn't done anything you know, that we knew. But... Uh, she confirmed that the reason she was calling is because they had seen some things with the daughter uh, and her relationship with her father that made them very concerned. Now, I don't know whatever happened with that, but here's a guy who wanted access to our children's program, and I'm very, very glad that we wouldn't give it to him. Okay, And so we insist on that here. If somebody wants to work with our kids, they have to take this uh, training and be vetted that way. You also, in order to even take the training and to, to be in with our kids, you have to have been here for six months. So you don't get easy access and you don't get quick access. And when we say be here, you don't have to be a member for six months. So let's say you've been coming for three or four months and you join the church. you still got a couple months before you could get involved. But got to be a total of six months before you get involved. All right, commitment to protecting our children. Commitment to biblical counseling, page 27. So I do a decent bit of counseling, and we have others who do counseling for us. And as our church has grown, we've needed to create levels of help for people. The Stephen ministry that we introduced a couple of weeks ago, uh, some of you were here for that uh, on the 29th. Yeah, so what's this, the 26th? It's been almost a month now. June 29th, we introduced Stephen ministry. That's a new layer of help for people that we've instituted. We want to start, and we have people training for now, a formal counseling ministry here. Right now, the formal counseling ministry is through the pastoral staff, primarily me and my wife. Uh, But we need to expand the people that are involved in that. But either way, whoever's doing it, it's biblical counseling. And I differentiate biblical counseling from Christian counseling. Now think about that for a moment. They should be the same thing, right? Those should be interchangeable, Christian counseling, biblical counseling. But the reason I emphasize it's biblical counseling is because Christian counseling in our day means this. Counseling dispensed by a Christian. It, it refers to the spiritual status of the person giving the counsel, not necessarily the content of what they're counseling. Biblical counseling refers to the content. It's counsel from the Bible. So a Christian counselor may or may not, and I would add, often does not 
get their counseling from the Bible. They get it from their secular training. Now, I'm not against secular training. In fact, I'm in favor of it. As long as somebody is skilled in filtering that through a biblical grid. And that really does take a skill. I mean, let me just give you an example. Uh, I have a book on my shelf called uh, A Guide to Christian Caregiving. And it's written by a Christian. But a guy who was trained in secular counseling. But he's a Christian. And in the in the book, he's got... Uh, I won't draw it because I can't draw it. But, but he's got this pyramid. And as I described the pyramid, maybe some of you have heard of it. It's just a pyramid, and then it's got these levels of needs. The pyramid's called a hierarchy of needs. And it's Maslow, Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Well, you can Google. If you're not familiar with that, you can Google it. But at, at the lowest level, you've just got what he calls physical needs, food and shelter and those kinds of things. So people have to have those met. But then as you get further up, you've got these relational needs. And for acceptance and so on. And as you look at what, you get to that level, what Abraham Maslow calls needs, the Bible calls desires that are not necessarily needs. See, we, in secular psychology, need and desire are used interchangeably. But sometimes our needs are not actual needs, they're desires that can become idolatrous. And if that need, so-called need, is not met the way I want, then I respond in ways that the Bible calls sin. Because I've elevated this desire to the level of an idol, and we call it a need. All right, so that's Maslow. And unless you are somebody who's you know, got some theological training, you don't have to be a seminary graduate, but just somebody who understands what the Bible teaches about the human heart, about sin... Maslow's thing sounds great. And many Christian books have fallen into this. Now, I, I'm i going to say this and don't kill me. And look, you can read this You can read this book and profit from it greatly. Really. Just read with discernment. But you all familiar with the five love languages? Now, it's got a lot of great insights in it. It really does. But... If you still have it on your shelf, go back and read it. And it's based on the idea that you have a need to have someone speak to you in your love language. Well, the Bible doesn't say you've got a need for somebody to speak to you in your love language. Now, it's cool if somebody does. <laughs> and I recommend that husbands learn to do that and learn about their wives and wives learn about their husbands and learn how they can help them and know more about them and speak to them in ways that are helpful to them, all of that. So it's got a lot of helpful stuff in it. But it's based on this idea that this is a need, and when you don't get it, that's when things go wrong. So think about it. When then things go wrong and I get ticked, it's not because I'm a sinner. It's really because you're a sinner. Because <laughs> you're not speaking in the right language. Learn the right language. Lots of Christian books that have a lot of helpful stuff in it that are not based on that. So when we say biblical counseling, that's what we're talking about. The counsel itself comes from comes from the Bible. Okay. Next page. Related to the counseling is confidentiality. One of the great things that Stephen Ministry does is when they uh, train those who will be Stephen ministers, like the ladies that you saw introduced on June 29. 
That training includes a lot of instruction about confidentiality. And it's very strict. So strict, they can't, they don't tell me stuff unless the person uh, that they're giving care to consents to it and needs some additional help. And then they introduce them to another level of care. But they're very strict about that. And I, I think overall that's a, that's a very good thing. So when counsel happens at our church, we're committing to confidentiality in that, uh, in that counsel. But there are some exceptions. And you see these bullet points there. One exception is when a leader is uncertain how to counsel a person about a particular problem and needs to seek advice from other leaders in the church or if the person attends another church from the leaders of that church. Or an exception is when the person who disclosed the information or any other person is in imminent danger of serious harm unless others intervene. So you're counseling with somebody and they say, I'm going to kill myself. You know, and I've had this happen. I'm on the phone with somebody and they say they're going to kill themselves. And I'm afraid for their safety. So I've had to get the police involved or other people involved to go over. And obviously that's a breach of the confidentiality, but it's for their safety. Or when a person refuses to repent of sin and it becomes necessary to promote repentance through accountability and redemptive church discipline. Now, next page on page 29, you see accountability and church discipline. We'll get to that in a minute then on page 29. But what that bullet point is referring to is the process that I'll talk about starting on page 29 where the Bible says if someone sins, you go to them. If they hear you and they repent, then it's all over. But if they don't, Matthew 18, Jesus says, then you take two or three others. And if they won't hear them, then you tell it to the church. So Jesus gives this process uh, for how to how to handle these, and that's what's called church discipline. And obviously, when you tell two or three others, or if you tell it to, it has to be told to the church, well, clearly that's no longer confidential, right? So that's an exception, but it's an exception that really should never have to be exercised because if a person just deals with it at the personal level, interpersonal level, then it's over with, okay? But we have to put that in there because that doesn't, sin being what it is, that doesn't always happen. Or when a person refuses to repent and seeks to circumvent church discipline by attending another assembly which is unaware of the process begun at our church. So what's being said there is a person sins here, you're a member here, you sin here, you've been approached about it, you refuse to deal with it, two or three others are involved, uh, you, you get to a point where uh, now the leadership has to get involved and maybe finally the church is going to have to get involved. And the person decides, you can't do that, I quit. I'm just going to go to another church. Well, one, that person has not dealt with their sin and they're going to take their problems over to another church. So we're saying, when you join the church, I'm not going to do that. If i got a problem, I'm going to deal with it. And, with, and then you're free to go to any church you want to. Obviously, you can leave us anytime you want. We're not a cult. We're not trying to hold anybody in here. Matter of fact, not only are we not trying to hold people in, we do make it a little bit difficult for you to come in. Okay? I mean, you got to take a class and you got to sign stuff. and you. Okay? So we make you jump through a few hoops because we think it ought to be that way. We think it ought to be important enough to for you to you know uh, understand what all's involved and be willing to sign in order to be a part. But if somebody decides this is not the church for them, then obviously they're free to go to another Bible-believing church. Uh, but you can't do that and take your junk from here to there and harm them. And that's what that's what that's about. Or last one is 
if they're if we're required to report suspected abuse, and uh, like I am a uh, I am a what's it, a mandatory reporter. That's what that's called in law. So if I see something that is suspected abuse, and you guys see the signs of that, then I'm mandated by law to to report that. Okay, which brings us to page 29. Accountability and church discipline. There's several pages here, um, but I'm just going to give you the parts that are most salient, uh, most important for for you. But on those pages, starting on page 29, it's really laying out what I said in brief just a bit ago about Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. Matthew 18, 15 to 17. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go to him and show him his fault. If he receives you, you've won your brother. It ends there. If he refuses, take two or three others. Now, let me stop and tell you what I understand about the two or three others. Uh, Who are these two or three others? I don't understand that to be just two or three of your buddies or your girlfriends that you say, you know what, so-and-so offended me. I went to her or him. They don't acknowledge it, and they don't care about it. And so I'm telling you so we can both go confront them. Now, that's what a lot of people think it is. But I don't think it is that, and here's why. Because uh, if you were to look that up, you would see that the two or three others, Jesus says, take two or three others along, and then it says this, so that every word might be established by two or three witnesses. And that every word being established by two or three witnesses, phrase, is in quotation marks. Which means it's a quote from somewhere else. Well, where's the quote? It's uh, Deuteronomy 19. First part of your Bible, Deuteronomy 19. Where laws are given, Deuteronomy, second law, that's what the word means. And laws are given in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 19, about court cases. And who's a valid witness, and when you can convict somebody, and all of that. And there it says that you can't convict someone based on the word of one person. That it's got to be established by two or three witnesses. So my understanding of Matthew 18 is not you take two or three people who are witnesses to your confrontation with this person. That is, I'm asking two or three of you to go while I go a second time to Joe and tell him what he did, and I want you to be witnesses of my confrontation with Joe. No, these are two or three witnesses, people who know what Joe did. Now, if you're awake still and you're thinking, you're going, what if there aren't two or three people who know what Joe did? Then my understanding is it ends right there. You say, well, then Joe gets away with it. And here's my understanding as well. Nobody gets away with anything. Right? Then I leave it in the hands of God. And God has a way of bringing it out. For example, I can't, I, I've had multiple times over the years, and it's usually happened in this direction, though it hap- can happen in the other direction, and I know there's one instance where it has. But it's usually been a woman in a marriage who is sure that her husband is having an affair. She just senses it. You know, there's just something not right. Um, he, he's working longer. She's just got all these things that, you know, she senses it. And she comes to me and says, he's having an affair. I, there's somebody else, I'm sure. And she gives me all the reasons. 
And and I say this, you may well be right, but I I don't know, and you don't know. I can talk to your husband, and and, and I usually do, and say, look, your wife is concerned about the state of your marriage. I'm here to try to help you with that, and so on. But I can't accuse him of adultery because I don't know that he's got somebody else. But here's what I tell the wife. If he does, my experience is it comes up. That the two or three witnesses will show up. That it will come out somehow. And and in virtually every case, it comes out. Uh, Letters are found. And the letters serve as a witness. Now, why can I say that? In... In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 2, 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 2, Paul says, I wrote to you in a letter, and now I'm writing to you again, so that every word may be established by two or three witnesses. He quotes that again. He's using his letter as a witness. It's documentary evidence is the point. So the point I understand Jesus to be making in Matthew 18 is, It's not just your word against their word with no documentary evidence or eyewitnesses. No one could ever be brought for church discipline uh, based on the word of just one other person. So if you don't have it, you have to wait for the Lord to bring it out. Now, if you do have it, you confront the person. And you say, look, we got the goods on you here. And you're refusing to deal with it. And we're calling you to repentance. And if they refuse to do that, Jesus says, tell it to the church. So the only things that would ever make it to the threshold of going to the church are things that have absolutely been proven. You get that? Nothing ever go, should ever go to the church, and never has here, and never will, Lord willing, based on what I'm telling you. Nothing could ever go to the church that hasn't gone through this elaborate process of it's been absolutely proven that this person has done this, and this person refuses to deal with it. Okay? So that's what church discipline is referring to. It's referring to that... Uh, those verses in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Now, this is just an aside. I like to kick this every time I, I go th- through this. In verse 20 of Matthew 18, just a couple verses down, Jesus says, And where two or three are gathered together in my name. You guys remember that verse? I am there with them. Now, how have you heard that verse used? If nobody shows up at church on a Wednesday night... <laughs> The pastor usually gets up and says, well, I don't know where everybody is, but where two or three are gathered, the Lord is with us. Or if you're having a home group or something, where two or three are gathered, the Lord is with us. And in the context, I don't think that's what Jesus was saying. That, hey, if you just have two or three together, be of good cheer because I'm there with you. No, it's actually in the context a warning. Because remember, just a few verses earlier, two or three have been used. How they've been used. Tell it. Bring along two or three witnesses so that every word might be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And Jesus then later says, and where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. It's a warning saying this isn't just a process that involves you guys. I'm involved as well. And I, the Lord, am watching this whole process. So to the offender, please understand that if you refuse to get this right, I'm seeing this whole thing and I'm involved in it. All right. Um, so people who want to do home church based on just, you know, where two or three are gathered together. I mean, I'm not against church in a home. 
Many of the churches in the New Testament were churches in a home. But the idea that you have no structure, you have no pastor, just some people get together for a Bible study, and Joe is sort of the leader. I keep picking on Joe today, don't I? (laughs) But Joe's the leader, and that, therefore, is a church because where two or three are gathered together. Listen, there are people who believe that. Lots of people who believe that. I've had people who used to come to this church who decided they were starting a home church. I said, who's going to be the pastor? Ah, well, I'll lead it. I said, that's not what I asked. Who's going to be the pastor? And doesn't the Bible say pastors are to be ordained, and who does that? But see, there's bypassing all that stuff because we got two or three are gathered together, and Jesus is as well. All right. So, page 29 then, accountability and discipline are signs of God's love. That's the way they should be viewed if we're repentant and, and humble. Page 30, if you'll look at page 30, most corrective discipline is private, personal, and informal. Most of it takes place one-on-one. You go to the person, you get it straight, and it doesn't go any further. Formal discipline, though, may involve the entire church, a la what I've just talked about. Now, here's the part, then, I've already explained that all of that. Here's the part I really want you to get. Look at page 32. And the first full par- paragraph on page 32. We realize that our natural human response to correction often is to hide or run away from accountability. To avoid falling into this age-old trap and to strengthen our church's ability to rescue us when we're caught in sin, we agree not to run away from this church to avoid corrective discipline. We affirm that membership is transferred, not resigned, as it is God's expectation that we be in recognized fellowship with His church. Now, what does that mean? That means if you're, you've sinned and you've been confronted about it and now we've got the two or three witnesses. If we don't have the two or three witnesses, then it's just one word against them that doesn't go any further. And you could leave the church and go to another church and you transfer to another church and the Lord will sort that out. But, but in your case, let's say there's two or three witnesses. You've done this, but you refuse to deal with it. And now it's getting further. The leadership's having to get involved. Maybe even it might have to go to the church. And you respond by saying, I'll circumvent that. I'm just going to leave. And we're saying you're not going to do that. That you're either going to deal with it here or you're going to deal with it there. That membership is transferred. It's not just resigned. Because it's God's expectation that we will be in recognized fellowship with the church. So what that means is you don't have to be here. And as I said, we don't lock the door and try to keep anybody here. But if you're not going to be here, you need to be at another Bible-believing church. And you transfer then from here to there. Well, when you transfer from here to there, guess what happens? There's a letter of transfer. Do you know why churches do letters of transfer? It's to keep people from bringing baggage with them. So you will not circumvent by just saying, I quit. And so when you join our church, you're making a commitment to do that. Now, none of this should scare you because none of this will ever happen if you sin and you get confronted with it, deal with it. And then we're done. Okay? And if you don't deal with it and we don't have two or three witnesses, we're still done. We've only had two times in the history of our church that it's gone to the church. It's been a number of years since that's happened. But sin being what it is, it'll happen again in the future. And we're just making you aware of it. Okay? All right. Next is... We invite you to become a member of our church. Becoming a member can be a life-changing decision. Preaching, teaching, fellowship, opportunities to page 34. 
Opportunities to use your gifts and mutual accountability that you experience in a church can dramatically change your relationship with the Lord and with the people he places in your life. By joining our church, you will demonstrate in concrete way your desire to unite with us to advance Christ's mission. Membership also will allow you to enjoy ministry opportunities and privileges not available to people who only attend. So you can participate and vote in congregational meetings. Eligible to minister with our children and youth. You can seek more opportunities to use your spiritual gifts. If you need counseling or support from our leaders, when their time is limited, your request will take precedence over those who have not joined the church. I, I do counsel with people who are not members, but i got to prioritize the people who are, who are members, right? So what do I do next? Page 35. First, make a decision to join a family of believers. For some, just the idea that I should join a church at all is a difficult step. There are a number of reasons for this, but a most common objection often voiced by well-intended people is why bother joining isn't membership just a man-made thing? Where is membership in the Bible? So if that's an issue for you, we've got Appendix B, and it's a long appendix and explains a number of reasons why the Bible points to formal membership in a church. So first decide that membership is necessary and that you need to join a family of believers. Having decided to join a family of believers, consider whether God would have you join this church family. And if you believe God would have you commit to serve at CBC, here are the four qualifications. You've got to have a credible testimony of salvation that you're a believer. You have to be baptized by immersion. If you haven't been baptized by immersion, then we can arrange to have that happen. You must be supportive of our statement of faith. Our statement of faith is Appendix A. I told you about that the first week. It's Appendix A. Now, when, notice that line. A church member must be supportive of our statement of faith. You might read through our statement of faith and go, I don't, I don't know what that is, or I'm not sure if I, I believe that. For, let me give you an example. In our statement of faith, we say we believe in what is called a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. So that means uh, in the future, Jesus predicted there will be the seven-year period called the seven-year tribulation. And we believe that pre-that, pre-tribulation, prior to that, that the church will be removed and will not go through them. So whoever's living at that time who are part of the church, who are Christians, they will be removed. That's what's called the pre-tribulation rapture. Well, not everybody believes that there's going to be this pre-tribulation rapture. We do, but not everybody does. And you may not believe that, or you may be confused about that. You could still join our church if you commit to being supportive of our statement of faith. That means you won't contradict what we teach you. So you could still join, but you're not going to then in the hallways or in small group or anything like that say, hey, do you buy that thing pastor teaches about pre-tribulation rapture and undermine what we teach? So we assume that you would have to believe the vast majority of what's in our statement of faith. Otherwise, why would you want to be a member of our church? Okay. So, but if you got something you're not sure of or something you don't believe, then you at least have to support it. And let me just add one other thing. I also assume that the thing you don't believe is not some cardinal doctrine of the faith. Like, I don't believe Jesus is God. You, you wouldn't want to join this church <laughs> if you didn't believe stuff like that, okay? So you're supportive of our statement of faith. And then lastly, a church member must consent to our church covenant, including our relational commitments, as explained in Lesson 4, the one we just completed. So those are the four requirements. You sign that thing. So you're a believer. You've been baptized. You support our statement of faith. You sign our, our covenant. So if you'd like to do that, here are the steps. You see me, and we set a time to discuss the process. Now, here's why. Because you, uh, the process may be different for each of you. 
If you're somebody who hasn't been baptized, the process involves getting baptized. If you're somebody whose name is on a roll at another church, you're a member at another church, that involves transferring from that church to here. If you're somebody who is not a member of another church, either because you've never been a member at another church or because it was so long ago that they dropped you off of their roles, well, then now you're coming to us through your testimony and our interview of you and so on. So you, you let me know, and then we can tell you which... Uh, which of those processes you need to go through. Page 37 has the, our membership application. So you see it there. It's just one page. It's pretty simple, but there it is. So you can fill that out, and you can turn that in at the information center. Um, if you don't want to mess up your book and tear it out of here, they've got copies of it there, so just get a, a sheet from them. You sign the church covenant, and that's on page 39. And the first four of the five things on page 39 are very eloquent. I can say that because I didn't write them. This was written about 150 years ago. It's been used in Baptist churches for about 150 years. The only thing that we added to it is number five. Number five says we acknowledge that we have read the relational commitments of this church and agreed to live by them. Those are the commitments in lesson four, the things we just went through. And then you, you sign that, okay? And then you meet with our leadership to give verbal testimony of salvation, answer any questions, and turn in your signed church covenant. The responsibilities of a member are in two broad categories. You agree to fulfill the obligations of the church covenant, and you're responsible to serve in the church. And so we try to find a place for you to serve that fits your background and gifts and abilities and all that. All right. Now, I said at the beginning, in fact, I said when we were announcing weeks before this started, this is for information purposes only. When you're done with it, we're done with it. We don't hassle you. So now it's on me to make good on that commitment. I'm not going to hassle you now. I've given you the information. You have the book. If you have any questions, you let me know. But the ball is now in your court for you to then let me know, let us know if you want to join the church. If you do, you can see me or you can just go ahead and fill out that membership application, turn it in, and that will get the, the process started. Okay? Any questions? Yes. Is this um, individual application or should it if you're individual? Okay, yeah, so individual. So yeah. So both of you would fill out your own. You got your own testimony. Right. And we would want to talk to both of you. We could we could meet with you both together, right. but you both need to fill out your own application. Okay? All right. Thanks.